The White House has unveiled its Christmas decorations. Dr. Mrs. First Lady Jill Biden announced this year's holiday theme will be inciting racial violence to terrorize Americans into accepting godless authoritarianism. A symphony in red and white. Dr. Mrs. First Lady Jill Biden said the purpose of the display would be, quote, to showcase those things that unite and bring us together unless you disagree with us, in which case they crush you and drink your blood from a hand-carved platinum horn of plenty, laughing at how you paid $8 for a gallon of gas while we were celebrating this festive season of the year, unquote. Speaking through her husband, who sat on her lap, silently opening and closing his mouth as if he were speaking himself, Dr. Mrs. First Lady Jill Biden went on to explain that, quote, Christmas is the season when we remember the poor and lowly who pay the price of our useless and nonsensical policies while we lose wars, ruin the economy, and turn our cities into crime-ridden trashscapes without ever suffering any consequences in the heartwarming spirit of this beautiful holiday, unquote. The White House decorations will include a roaring fire consuming Portland, Oregon, and stacks of gigantic candy cane colored boxes filled with sumptuous gifts from the news media, like a baseball glove for catching softball questions, a talking doll that says, please take your face out of my hair, Mr. President, while reporters pretend not to hear it, and a laptop filled with evidence of Biden corruption that magically becomes invisible whenever a journalist looks at it. White House decorations will also include busts of George Floyd, Jacob Blake, Michael Brown, and other criminals that black Americans can aspire to become if they only dare to dream and follow Democrat policies. If they dare to wake up and follow conservative policies, then they ain't black and will be stripped of their victim status, mindlessly derided as white supremacists, and forced to console themselves with an education, a good job, and a happy life. The White House is also planning a large Christmas party that will showcase just how rich the elite are becoming while ordinary people cling desperately to government largesse in hopes of keeping up with spiraling inflation caused by government largesse. Entertainment for the FET will include comedian Stephen Colbert, who'll be doing his hilarious routine, If Trump Voters Ain't Stupid, Then How Come I'm Making Millions from a Corporation That Kowtows to the China That Takes Their Jobs While They're Killing Themselves with Opiates and I Don't Give a Damn. The White House party will ring with silver bells and pop with champagne corks and sparkle with expensive gowns bearing socialist political messages while mass servitors slavishly bring trays of glorious food to their barefaced Democrat masters. There'll even be a special surprise announcement when Dr. Mrs. First Lady Jill Biden unveils the new flu variant and tells us how long we'll have to stay in our homes if we're not one of her friends. So let the holiday season begin and Merry Christmas from the Biden White House to all the little people whoever the hell they are. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. All right, the vast right-wing conspiracy known as Clavinon continues. I hope you all had a nice Thanksgiving. Uh, for our atheist listeners, I hope you all had a nice sitting around wondering where everything came from. We're going to talk about uh, all the stuff that happened while I was gone, murder in Waukesha, uh, the Omicron and other viruses like Matt Walsh will be with us. Uh, so I'll be wearing a mask just to protect myself, even though he's thousands of miles away. If you haven't bought When Christmas Comes, You Ain't Black, you want to become black immediately by uh, ordering When Christmas Comes, my new novel, which you will love. And everyone, really, people have just been so enthusiastic about it. It's very gratifying. I hope you will buy it and like it. Also, while you're liking stuff, go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review and subscribe. And it's incredibly helpful to the show. It really uh, keeps the show going. So please do that. Also, go on YouTube and subscribe to my private Andrew Clavin 
channel, which has all kinds of stuff you won't get on the show, uh, including uh, jewelry that some of it's hot, I know, but, you know, and silverware, I think, that I took from other people's houses while I was delivering content, which I will also do to your house if you just subscribe and ring that bell, that little bell there, uh, and that will bring the police. Uh, Also, if you leave a comment and the comment is hateful and bigoted, racist, sexist, everything like that, then it fits right in with the show. So we'll read it. You know, during the holidays, there was this rumor going around that Kamala Harris was doing such a garbage job as vice president that the Democrats were considering appointing her to the Supreme Court just to get rid of her because they couldn't run her in the next election. Now, it's probably a joke of some kind that was just going around Washington, but it did point to something that's actually important. I have mentioned that we are in an information crisis. I think that is absolutely true. I think that is at the center of a lot of our problems. What has happened, I think, is that the mainstream media and the deep state government and corporate media are doubling down on their ideological corruption. They're lying and supporting things that they like and attacking things that they dislike in order to counter the flood of information and misinformation that's coming in through the internet. They want to seize control of a narrative that has slipped away from them. They used to own the narrative. Now they've lost it. They've panicked and they've just started lying like dogs. So in doing that, in fact, it's kind of backfired on them. They've lost our trust entirely. So when they come out and say something, you know, that might be a good idea, like take the vaccine, we're like, absolutely not. You're trying to kill us. And that makes perfect sense because they've lied about everything else. Now, the fact that they've lost our trust has had different effects on both sides because they're Democrats, because they're leftists, and because they're lying for the Democrats. What you have is you have Democrats who are trapped in this thing where they run from fallen idol to fallen idol. Oh, Hillary, isn't she wonderful? She's this career criminal, very, very sleazy woman, uh, never really accomplished anything on her own, just rode on uh, Bill Clinton's coattails, and she somehow is a feminist icon. Oh, they love her, they love her so much until they find out, oh yeah, she was colluding with Russian, with Russia in order to accuse Trump of uh, colluding with Russia. Then, you know, they, another one, Michael Avenatti, they go to Andrew Cuomo and they discover he's a bad guy. And now it's Anthony Fauci. Here's what Biden said about Anthony Fauci yesterday. It's cut 27. I've seen more <laughs> of Dr. Fauci than I have my wife. We kid each other. But uh, they look, who's president? Fauci. Um, but all kidding aside, I, I sincerely mean it. I mean, this is this is typical of what goes on is that when their idols fall, here's a guy, Fauci, who has has done nothing to reduce the effects of the Chinese flu. The red states have ignored him and done better. Uh, The Wall Street Journal had an article about how well the red states are doing financially and they haven't done any worse in terms of flu numbers. The Florida labor force has expanded one point two percent during the pandemic, while California's has shrunk 2.1%. 2.1%. California has lost 40 times more workers than Florida adjusting for popu- for population. That is true of all the states. In all the states, the red states are doing better. Uh, a few of, uh, um, exceptions like Alaska, but in most of the states, the red states are doing far better than the blue states because they ignored Fauci. They ignored Fauci. So now Joe Biden is joking that he's really the president of the United States, which, yes, would be an improvement, but it would be an improvement if a stone at this point were president of the United States. So that's the effect on the left. The left goes from here. They hero worship clowns. They hero worship clowns. And then they just kind of 
pump, stuff them in the memory hole. When Andrew Cuomo, uh, you know, turns out to be chasing, they didn't they didn't get Andrew Cuomo for sending covid patients into rest homes where they slaughtered uh, old people in New York state. They got him because he grabbed a couple of women by the backside. And so that's now he goes down the drain. They just forget it. They forget all the stuff. Good stuff. They said he was going to be president. Michael Avenatti was going to be president. Fauci, they've got little candles with Fauci. They'll forget about that once the truth about him finally sinks in. But on the right wing, there's there's something different. The information crisis has resulted in a tendency to believe like every conspiracy theory that comes down the pike. And why wouldn't you? The media lies, the government lies, the media lies about the government lying, the government lies about the media lying. When someone comes along and says, well, you know, Venezuela rigged the voting machines or the pandemic is really a plandemic, they actually planned this out so they could take our freedoms away, we think, well, it could be. Everybody else is lying about everything. Why wouldn't that be the truth? But I have another theory. And I think my theory is much more realistic. It's much more in keeping with the way things work. My theory is simply this, that our elites as a class are worn out. We're, we've reached the end of something. We've reached the end of the post-war era, that we've reached the end of Reagan Republicanism, which kept us afloat even until Barack Obama destroyed it. But it kept us going. Clinton followed the Reagan path, and that's why he did very well uh, economically. All of those things have come to an end, and something new is beginning, and the people that we have uh, in place as elites are played out. They're done. They're corrupt. They become corrupt. And they're incompetent and their ideas don't work. And they are just doing the same things over and over again. They don't work. And their only two choices are one choice is to look in the mirror and say, really, I do not deserve to be an elite. I'm going to hand over my Mercedes. I'm going to give up my big house. I'm going to step down from my office and just go away and think for a while and figure out how I can become a better person. Yeah, that I know what you're thinking. You're right. That's not going to happen, right? Or they have to keep promoting one another in their incompetence in order to continue the illusion that somehow they should be worshipped until they get caught, until they chase a girl down the street, until they get caught with, uh, you know, money in their pocket they shouldn't have, until Fauci turns out to have been the complete obvious incompetent and fool and buffoon and power hungry madman that he is, you know, until all that stuff comes out, they just keep promoting one another. And the and lying to one another and praising one another, making sure the press praises one another and blaming you, blaming you for their failures. Your, their catastrophes are because you're a racist. You're a bad guy. You do bad. You're too stupid to go right. If you're if you didn't go to college, you're a dumb white guy. If you did go to college, you're an elite. If you served in the military, you're a warmonger. If you didn't serve in the military, you're a coward, whatever it is, whatever they can attack you on. That's the reason all their policies fail. That's the reason their cities look like garbage. That's the reason their unemployment is worse in uh, their states than in red states. It's all because of you. It's all your fault. And they attack our freedom of speech. They don't attack our freedom of speech because they're sitting around thinking like, ah, we're going to get rid of freedom of speech. I've always hated that. And the integrity of our elections with their attempt to have a federal takeover of elections. They're not doing that. They're doing that because those are the places that consequences might come from. Those are the places where they will be held to account because they're not going to hold each other to account. They're not going to hold themselves to account. You know, Jack Boots Dorsey retired as CEO of Twitter and handed it over to the anti-free speech racist uh, Parag Agrawal, a guy who said that, uh, you know, he's not if 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 white people can't distinguish between Muslims and extremists, I'm not going to distinguish between uh, white people and racists, something like that. The guy's a clown. And he said, we're not responsible to the First Amendment. We don't need. But what they did was Twitter immediately put in place, immediately put in place new terms of use 
that make it difficult to ridicule public officials who you should be ridiculing. Those are the people you should be ridiculing to protect them in their incompetence. This is not a conspiracy against freedom. It's not as a, not as a first objective. What we're simply seeing is a conspiracy of incompetence, which is intended to keep the incompetence from losing their elite status because of their incompetence. So Kamala has failed at being vice president. Let's put her on the Supreme Court. Fauci has failed in dealing with the pandemic. pandemic so let's make him president. Whatever you say about Donald Trump, I have good things and bad things to say about Donald Trump. When I say bad things, you get ticked off at me, but I can only tell you the truth. But there is no question that he's shown a light on the incompetence and corruption of Democrats who elevate criminals like Hillary Clinton and Republicans who commit political malpractice like running crap by running crap candidates like Mitt Romney and John McCain. That's why they keep on about January 6th. January 6th was bad. It was not a good thing. It was a bad thing. It was it, Trump bears some blame for that, but it is no worse than lockdowns that have kept children out of school and caused people to commit suicide. It's no worse than the riots that they sat and ignored. They caused, first the media caused them, then the media ignored them. The crime and the homelessness in our cities, which are a disgrace, the inflation, the disaster in Afghanistan, the slow motion tragedy of what the great society has done to our black citizens for which no one has paid the price except for we, the people. So when I talk about the fact that nobody pays the price, that people fail upward, that people just get promoted no matter what they've accomplished, I think back to Marine Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller. Do you remember this guy? I, he came and went. It, it happened so fast, you know, I, but I want to go back. I'll get to the news of the day, but I want to go back and look at this because it's kind of symbolic of everything else that's happening, right? They're pulling out of Afghanistan. They close Bagram Air Force Base before they get everybody evacuated. So they close the military base. Now they're forced to get out through the civilian base and they can't protect it. And a suicide bomber gets in, kills 13 service members, 11 Marines. And this this Colonel, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller comes on and he makes a video and he starts out by saying, I understand that I am risking my job, my reputation, uh, possibly my freedom, my pension. I understand that I'm doing that, but someone has to because the top brass won't. And here's a little bit of what he said. If an 05 battalion commander has uh, the simplest live fire incident EO complaint, boom, fired. But we have a secretary of defense that testified to Congress in May that the Afghan National Security Force could withstand the Taliban advance. We have chairmen of Joint Chief, who the commandant is a member of that, who's supposed to advise on military policy. We have a Marine combatant commander. All of these people are supposed to advise. And I'm not saying we've got to be in, the, in Afghanistan forever, but I am saying, did any of you throw your rank on the table and say, hey, it's a bad idea to evacuate Bagram Airfield, the strategic air barriers, before we evacuate everyone? This amalgamation of the economic slash corporate slash political slash higher military ranks are not holding up their end of the bargain. This, this is an amazing thing. This is the model. This is the model now. It didn't used to be, you know, the, the left hates Richard Nixon so much, hated Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon resigned rather than allow the country to continue to be in turmoil. He considered that his, an, the honorable thing to do. Who has resigned after Afghanistan? That kid, Scheller, he was fired from his position as the battalion commander of Advanced Infantry Training Battalion uh, at the School of Infantry at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. I'm reading this from the Marine Corps Times. He went on, even after he was fired, he went on making videos. So then they put him in the brig. They put him in jail. I think he was in jail for about eight days saying that he was a flight risk. 
Uh, they then charged him and he played, pled guilty to six violations of the Uniform Code of Mil Military Justice, mostly forbidding disrespect towards superior officers. He was he pled guilty to Article 88, which is contempt towards civilian officials. You know, the last time someone was convicted of Article 88 during the Vietnam War, when somebody said, when a, a serviceman said LBJ is a fascist, and they convicted him of that. So this is really extraordinary stuff. They fined him a month's pay. They gave him a letter of reprimand. They accepted his resignation from the Marines, but they won't let him go. He's got a three-year contract. His mother is saying she doesn't feel he's safe. She's saying, at this point, I just want him to part ways and be safe because I don't feel he's safe there anymore. Okay. Listen, it's the military. You know, you got to obey the rules. You got to respect your uh, superior officers. I'm not even commenting on what happened to him. Here's my comment, right? It's from, this is a, a piece, a little paraphrase of Michael Anton writing in the Claremont Review of Books. No senior decision making, maker. Now, keep this guy Scheller in mind, right? I'm telling you, there's no senior decision maker over the course of the entire 20 year catastrophe of Afghanistan has ever paid any Price, the foundational error of the whole war, letting Osama bin Laden and his top brass escape the mountains of Tora Bora, has never even been adequately explained, much less punished. Despite our soldiers on the ground winning victory after victory, hardly anyone could define what victory looked like. Overall, the only coherent answer, a stable, prosperous, democratic Afghanistan, was a fantasy from the beginning. Yet the more it became evident that this task was impossible, the more the ruling class invested in it. But the president's Vice presidents, secretaries of state and defense, national security advisors, directors of national intelligence, CIA directors and admirals and generals who compounded one error after another are all today members in good standing of the ruling class, class and handsomely rewarded for their failures. Even guys who got knocked out for, for like, uh, what's his name, uh, Commander Stanley McChrystal got thrown out for criticizing the Obama administration. He's making big money making speeches. Uh, David Petraeus gave classified information to his mistress, right? He's now working for a private equity firm and making big coin there, even though he knows nothing. Uh, he has no background in finance. Mark Milley is telling us that the problem is white rage because that's always the thing. It's always our fault. It's always our fault. It's never like, hey, you know, if I was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, while that disaster was going on, I should resign and take responsibility for it because it happened on my watch. Joe Biden, 2020, remember he did that um, uh, town hall, I think, on CNN's cut three. This is what he said about Donald Trump's handling of the Chinese flu. If the president had done his job, had done his job from the beginning, all the people would still be alive. All the people, I'm not making this up, just look at the data. Look at the data. And as then, we're now being told, there's going to be no, I pray to God there's a, a vaccine tomorrow that could be available to everyone. First of all, once a vaccine is made available, and you know this well, once it's made available, it's going to take a long, long time to be able to distribute it throughout the country. You're not going to have 325 million vials to begin with. <laughs> That's what he said. He said anyone who is responsible for that many deaths should not remain as president of the United States of America. COVID deaths this year have now surpassed the toll in 2020 with 350,000 since Inauguration Day. It would seem this is reading from The Wall Street Journal. It would seem that Mr. Biden has done no better than Donald Trump in defeating COVID despite the vaccine that Trump brought into being better therapies and more clinical experience. Has he resigned? Has he taken any responsibility? The man at the helm, Dr. Fauci, he's the real president, Joe Biden says. And this is what this is what Fauci says about himself. This is cut 13. 
If they get up and criticize science, nobody's going to know what they're talking about. But if they get up and really aim their bullets at Tony Fauci, well, people could recognize there's a person there. So it's easy to criticize. But they're really criticizing science because I represent science. That's dangerous. To me, that's more dangerous than the slings and the arrows that get thrown at me. It's dangerous to criticize him because he's the same. Remember Barry Manilow's music? Because he wrote, wrote the songs. <laughs> it's like Fauci is science. At least, I mean, at least Barry, Barry Manilow wrote I Made It Through the Rain. That was like a decent song. I sang Mandy, you know. That's like, oh, my. So, so now they have this new variant, Omicron. You know, there's going to be more and more variants. That's what viruses do. They mutate. We attack them, they mutate. That's the that's the whole system. And this one, Omicron, they call it Omicron because they didn't want to call it Xi, you know, the Greek letter that comes after the last one they had, which is XI, because that looks too much like the leader of the country that spread the disease in the first place. It looks like uh, she, you know. So they don't want to call it that. So they call it Omicron. Apparently, it's kind of mild. It's like a little minor flu. And that is a good thing. It's good for the virus. It's good for us, right? We don't get as sick and the virus gets to keep us alive so it can spread around more, which is what it wants. It doesn't want to kill its host. It wants the host to stay alive long enough to keep spreading it. So this is a good thing. We should actually be spreading Omicron. Instead, oh, the new the new policies are coming out. You know why the new... But this is the thing. You know why the new policies... See, we think we, we're so uh, prone to conspiracy theorizing now. We think... Ah, this is what they want. They want to shut us down. They want to take our freedom. It's not that. It is not that. They're coming up with these stupid new policies. Stay masked indoors. Stay masked in airplanes. Stuff that didn't work in the first place. It's not going to work now. Overseas, they're locking down. Germany is locking people up if they're unvaccinated. Well, Germany is Germany, you know. But but still, still, they're doing all this for the same reason movie producers put George Clooney in a movie. Okay. George Clooney's movies never make any money unless a thousand other stars earn it. Ocean's Eleven makes movies. But if George Clooney puts out a movie, it doesn't make any money. But no one was ever fired for casting George Clooney because the media says he's a movie star. The media says he's a movie star. If you hired him, your boss will say, oh, you hired a movie star. That's You're not the reason the picture failed and you won't get fired. This is the same thing. The media tells us Fauci is king. Fauci comes out and says some sort of crap. We do this sort of crap. He says, well, if as many people die, uh, you know, if more people die in California than die in Florida, it's not our fault. We did what Fauci said. Fauci's the pre- Fauci is science. He writes the songs. You know, he's so that is the thing. It's all about this conspiracy of incompetence to keep from taking responsibility, from throwing your gauntlet down, saying, you know what? I screwed up. I quit. I resign. Never going to happen. Only the little people. So you're a racist. You are a racist. That is why their policies, left wing Democrat policies, have left black people mired in fatherless homes that are destroying their children in high crime areas. It, you know, let's build a state. We'll just change the rules. We'll build a statue to George Floyd. And then everybody will love George Floyd and will say it's not a bad thing that our policies destroyed your life. It's not a bad thing that our policies destroyed your children. Here's a statue of a criminal. So like you too can be a criminal. It's amazing. Why are businesses teaching this CRT racist garbage? Why are they teaching this racist garbage? Because they can't get sued for not take, for not teaching it that way, right? In other words, Listen, here, here's what's happening in our schools. This was also in the Wall Street Journal. Chicago public schools, these are in blue state schools. 
26% of 11th graders are at grade level in reading and math in 2019. So this is before the pandemic. The school system had a record high graduation rate of nearly 84% in 2021. So they're graduating people who can't read. The, the, they're, um, at half of first-year community college students in the U.S. take at least one remedial course in reading or math. In the U.S., 43 million adults are illiterate. This is Andy Kessler writing in the journal. In pre-pandemic California, only 32% of fourth graders were at or above proficient for their grade in reading. Only 19% of eighth grade Hispanics read at grade level. 10% of eighth grade blacks did. You can't fire the teachers because the teachers union is one of the main donors to the Democrat Party. So there's no consequences for the big people, only for the little people, only for the kids because they come out and they can't read. But you still have to hire them else you're a bigot. You're a racist. It's your fault that you can't hire a guy because he didn't get an education. So that, that's your fault. It's your fault. When, what, and what if he becomes a criminal because he's got no father because the welfare system is paying women to have uh, children out of wedlock? That's, you hate him because he's a criminal. You move out of your neighborhood because a criminal moved next door. You're a racist. You know, there's an entrepreneur named Simon Black. He runs a site called The Sovereign Man. And he talks about this. He says, in early 27, the brand new district attorney for Milwaukee County, Wisconsin, this is John Chisholm. John Chisholm is a George Soros, one of these George Soros left-wing DAs. He brags about the fact that he went after Scott Walker for absolute minor garbage because Scott Walker was uh, breaking the unions. But he also said, as he came in in 2007, he said he was going to be lenient and let people out of prison and reform the bail system. And here's, he gave an interview to a local newspaper, and here's what he said. He told the reporter, is there going to be an individual I release back into the street or that I put into a treatment program who's going to go out and kill somebody? You bet. Guaranteed. It's guaranteed to happen. It doesn't invalidate the overall approach. What invalidates the overall approach is that homicides are up about 32% in large cities across the nation, but Milwaukee has seen an increase three times the national average. 190 homicides in Milwaukee last year, the most on record through mid-November. The city was on pace to pass. This year, the city is on pace to pass that number with already 160 murders so far. More than 740 people have been shot in Milwaukee, a nearly 25% increase over last year, which brings us, of course, to or the criminal SUV that ran into a Christmas party, because this is the way the press is writing it. It's not is a black guy, drives his SUV into the Christmas parade in Waukesha, which is part of the Milwaukee metro area. So this DA is in charge here. Six people are dead, including an eight-year-old boy. 62 people are injured. I mean, this is like an all-American gathering, old people, young people, you know, watching the Christmas parade is 39, right? He's got memes and messages on social media that have been deleted so nobody sees them, uh, attacking cops, comparing cops to the Ku Klux Klan, calling them violent street gangs. Uh, so saying, so when we going to start knocking white people TF out, uh, the old white people to knock them TF out, period. He writes this, he says, Hitler knew who the real Jews were. Uh, he says, the, the Negroes are the true Hebrews. He says he suggests that World War III will start when people learn Hitler was right and did the world a favor by killing Jews. He was he's a career criminal. He's a sex molester. He's a sexual um, a sex um, 
you know, he's one of those guys who has to register sex offender. Uh, he'd been set free earlier last month after making $1,000 bail. This is one of these guys, $1,000 bail. Uh, when he ran over the mother of his child, he ran her over with his car in a parking lot. This is the guy, you know, this is the guy they let out for $1,000 bail because of their theories. And, and after it happened, AOC said we have to continue to reform the bail system. The Washington Post said it was the accident and the accident was caused by an SUV. CNN said an SUV ran into the Christmas parade. No responsibility. No one saying, hey, shouldn't this DA resign? No. You know who pays? The eight-year-old boy and the eight-year-old boy's parents. They're the ones who pay. It's the little people who pay. In California, in California, all those riots where people were rioting because the left was lying about how the police treat black people, ginned up riots, the gangs realized, oh, nobody's going to stop us from stealing. So now they don't need the riots anymore. They're just gathering together to steal stuff. They run in and smash and grab stuff. And there was a piece... uh, there was a piece on TV saying, you know, this has ruined Black Friday, one of the big retail days of the year, because everybody's afraid in California to go into a store because these gangs might come running through. In the New York Times, a former newspaper, the New York Times was genuinely rocked by the loss of Virginia, Virginia becoming a red state. And they've been kind of whining like a whip dog ever since. And so they're saying, what's wrong? Why don't everybody love us? So they wrote a piece by a, um, a video, they put out a piece by a video maker named Johnny Harris, who collaborated with Benjamin Applebaum, who is one of the financial uh, writers on the editorial board of the New York Times. And they pointed out that blue states have all the problems that blue states complain about. The blue states are always saying Republicans are to blame. Republicans got on our way. They stopped us from doing it. But in states where they have all the power, the legislature, the governor, that's where these problems of inequality are. Here's a little bit of the video that's cut to. Blue states are the problem. Blue states are where the housing crisis is located. Blue states are where the disparities in education funding are the most dramatic. Blue states are the places where tens of thousands of homeless people are living on the streets. Blue states are the places where economic inequality is increasing most quickly in this country. This is not a problem of, of not doing well enough. It is, it is a situation where the blue states are the problem. Affluent liberals tend to be really good at showing up to the marches and talking about how they love equality. They're really good at putting signs in their lawn saying that all are welcome here. But by their actions, what they're actually saying is, yes, we believe in these ideals, just not in my backyard. But of course they don't want it in the backyard. They have this thing, NIMBY, not in my backyard, and they make fun of them. But of course, that why would you want criminals and, and high crime in your backyard? Why would you want to bring in people who've been destroyed by the great society, who have no fathers, who are criminals? You know, people, they always talk about white flight, like people are running away from black people. They're not running away from black people. You know, a doctor moves in who's black. They're not running away from him. They're running away from criminals. They run away because of high crime. That's why they run away. So why should they want these uh, want uh, low-income housing in high-income neighborhoods? They worked hard to get where they are. What they're essentially complaining about is that their policies don't work for human beings because of the way human beings are, because they work hard to get ahead. They want to be in a nice neighborhood. They want that neighborhood to stay nice. Sure, they want to give people charity. Rich people give all the charity in the world, but they don't want people moving in that are going to raise crime and lower property rates. That's simply human nature. It's actually right. It is the right way to behave because if people don't rise up, then nobody rises up. It's it's all, and, and when people do uh, pay a price, 
It's always somebody who's not going to harm the general system. Delane Maxwell is on trial for being essentially a procurer for Jeffrey Epstein, right? They can't try Jeffrey Epstein because somehow mysteriously with the cameras were supposed to be on him. He was supposed to be in protective custody. He was supposed to have uh, another guy in his cell. He was supposed to have guards watching him constantly. Somehow all of those things fell apart and he managed to hang himself. Wink, wink. So they can't try him. So they, and people are ticked off about it. So they try Ghislaine Maxwell. They've got this, you know, heartbreaking testimony from this soap opera actress who was just calling herself Jane saying how she was recruited, how she was groomed as a 14-year-old to get her used to the fact that Jeffrey Epstein was going to molest her and Ghislaine Maxwell was part of that. This is the accusation. But what about the people who were there, who went to this Lolita on this Lolita Express to this Lolita Island and were abusing them. Those are the powerful people. You know, there was one, uh, the press got very excited because this woman said she met Donald Trump in Mar-a-Lago. I don't know what Trump did, but I do know that uh, Trump banned Jeffrey Epstein from Mar-a-Lago after he made a pass at the teenage daughter of one of his employees. So maybe Trump actually wasn't doing anything. But you know what? If he was Fine, as long as they also get the other people, because Bill Clinton was on that plane a million times. Why was George Stephanopoulos uh, at a party honoring Jeffrey Epstein after Epstein was convicted the first time? George Stephanopoulos went to that party. Oh, and by the way, the Epstein story, apparently the um, Amy Robach, who works under George Stephanopoulos at ABC, she said they had that story in 2015 and Project Veritas got a hot mic of her saying they dumped the story in 2015, remember, when Hillary Clinton, George Stephanopoulos's former boss, was about to run for president against Donald Trump. Here's Amy Robach from a Project Veritas video. I've had the story for three years. I've had this interview with Virginia Roberts. We would not put it on the air. Um, first of all, I was told, who's Jeffrey Epstein? No one knows who that is. This is a stupid story. Um, then the palace found out that we had her whole allegations about Prince Andrew and threatened us a million different ways. Um, we were so afraid we wouldn't be able to interview Kate and Will that we, that also quashed the story. She told me everything. She had pictures. She had everything. It was unbelievable what we had. Clinton, we had everything. Do I think he was killed? A hundred percent. Yes, I do. Because you want to, he made his whole living blackmailing people. There were a lot of men in those planes, a lot of men who visited that island, a lot of powerful men who came into that apartment. Not one person has ever asked George Stephanopoulos if he had anything to do with killing that story. Who got punished for this? Who got punished? Who got fired? Who resigned? The the ABC News executives traced the, the former employee who they thought leaked this footage, who was then working at CBS, and CBS fired that employee for leaking it, for revealing it, just like the Marine gets busted for saying the people in charge should take responsibility for this disaster, but the people in charge never take responsibility for this disaster. We've got a played out, corrupt, incompetent elite. A new thing has happened. The internet has been invented. A new world exists. And uh, the old ideas are failing. The old ideas are falling apart. They've got nothing. They've got nothing. So they keep promoting themselves. You know, I almost felt sorry for Chris, Chris Cuomo, but, but I don't feel sorry for him. I'll tell you why. Chris Cuomo came out and, you know, he was obviously helping uh, when Andrew Cuomo got caught, he was collaborating with Andrew Cuomo's team saying, you know, tell me what to do. Tell me, I'll get information for you. I'll get information. He seems to have actually tried to get information on the women who were accusing Andrew Cuomo of 
making them feel uncomfortable. I mean, I think Andrew Cuomo should have been chased out of the governor's office for killing all the old people, but they got him, you know, he got him for pinching a couple of butts, basically. I mean, he doesn't seem to have done anything all that terrible. But the New York AG, Letitia James, who is just as left as Andrew Cuomo, but it's like somebody described her as, as two scorpions in a jar. She, she hates Andrew Cuomo, and Cuomo is a bully and a creep, and so everybody hates him hates him, but she released all these documents on Chris Cuomo and he got caught. One of them, the one that really got me, was that uh, he wrote to the team saying, I have a lead on the wedding girl, the girl who said that Andrew Cuomo made her feel uncomfortable at her wedding. So Cuomo went after her. So, so CNN finally, finally, Jeff Zucker has been protecting this clown for all this time, right? They all knew he helped. They already knew, but this was just too much, too much. So they suspended him indefinitely. They suspended him indefinitely. And everybody's saying, oh, wow, he's paid a price. He's paid a, paid a price. Here is Brian Stelter right there. He's, he's their media guy. He's their media cop, Brian Stelter. You know, who is it? Tucker Carlson calls him the eunuch, which I just think is transphobic. I mean, the guy obviously identifies as a woman because he said that he missed a deadline to have a good cry during the uh, <laughs> pandemic. So obviously he's not a, a eunuch. He's, a, you know, a complete female. Um, here's Stelter commenting on this case. Cut 11. I think the bottom line is that Cuomo is on the bench for now. We're heading into a holiday season. I think it's possible he will be on the bench for several weeks. It's possible he'll be back in January. Uh, but I think what's going to happen now here at CNN is a more thorough review of the New York Attorney General's document dump in order to find out more about what happened. <laughs> he'll be back in January. He'll be back. Maybe he's on the bench. He's on the bench. It's an injury. It's an injury. He's on, he's on the, the DL. You know, it's like it's, he's not going anywhere. He's, he's their highest rated guy. You know, he's got three uh, viewers, uh, some of them who haven't even boarded the plane yet. So, I mean, look, this is the same media that took Brian Williams. Remember, Brian Williams was claiming he got shot at in a helicopter over Iraq. Uh, and, you know, it all turned out to be a lie. All these lies. That was only one of the lies he had told. He was retired from his show on NBC. And then they gave him a show on MSNBC. Dan Rather lied about George W. Bush, got caught with forged papers, trying to push forged papers on people. Then uh, Robert Redford played him in the movie. You're a legend, Dan. Dan, you're a legend. You're a le You know, I mean, this is the... This is these are the consequences of being in the leadership class there. We have a leadership class of war losing, child raping, lie telling, city destroying, incompetent corruptos who never pay a price for anything. And then they blame us because we're racist, we're evil. And that's the conspiracy. It's a conspiracy of incompetence to praise one another and promote one another and blame us for the stuff they are doing. Don't let anybody speak. You know, don't let them vote. Let immigrants come swarming in to overcome any opinions they might have. Good. The immigrants, maybe they don't speak English, so they won't know how bad we've made things. And still, our country is still better than their crap hole country. But if you call it a crap hole country, then, you know, Anderson Cooper will go on CNN and cry because it, you called, you were mean to their country. Just keep them swarming in because otherwise, otherwise we got to look in the mirror and see ourselves as we are and lose our money and our private jets and our gun-toting security guards that we have while nobody else can have it and our big titles and the little girls having sex with us. And then we have to live at the level we deserve. You know, I want to end this by talking about what happened with Roe v. Wade, this case that co has come before the Supreme Court. And it, it, it's remarkable to me, it is remarkable to me what happened. I mean, the people on the right are excited that possibly we have the judges on the court to overturn Roe, which, remember, does not 
mean that abortions are outlawed. It simply means that each state makes its own abortion laws because if things aren't mentioned in the Constitution, that belongs to the state. And so the left is saying all these things like, well, uh, how can abortion rights be judged by the states? Other rights aren't judged by the states. The state can't take away your right to free speech. It's because there is no abortion right. The courts made it up out of whole cloth. There is no, you know, Clarence Thomas, arguing with the lawyers, said, where is this? Where is the right in the Constitution to an abortion? What, what right are you defending when you defend abortion rights? Here's a little bit of that. Let's cut five. If we were talking about the Second Amendment, I know exactly what we're talking about. If we're talking about the Fourth Amendment, I know what we're talking about because it's written. It's there. What specifically is the right here that we're talking about? Well, Justice Thomas, I think that the court in those other contexts with respect to those other amendments has had to articulate what the text means and the bounds of the constitutional guarantees. And it's done so through a variety of different tests that implement First Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment rights. So I don't think that there is anything unprecedented or anomalous about the right that the court articulated in Roe and Casey and the way that it implemented that right by defining the scope of the liberty interest uh, by reference to viability and providing that that is the moment when the balance of interest tips and when the state can act to prohibit a woman from, from getting an abortion based on its interest in protecting the fetal life at that point. So the right specifically is abortion? It's the right of a woman prior to viability to control whether to continue with a pregnancy, yes. <laughs> so in other words, he's saying the Second Amendment says you have the right to bear arms. There is no right to an abortion. It's made up. You don't have the right to kill people. You don't have the right. You don't. Have, that's it. Bingo. It's all about this child, this child who's in the womb. So now that's the argument that the justices on the right were making. They were making legal arguments about precedent. Can't we overturn uh, a precedent if the precedent is wrong? If we couldn't do that, we wouldn't have, uh, you know, integrated the schools. Uh, we wouldn't have given blacks free rights. We have to be able to overturn bad decisions no, long, no matter how long they've been in place. But on the left, on the left, the arguments are all, they're either stupid or they're political. Now, they're, one, they're stupid because they leave the baby out of it. I mean, this is really the only question about abortion. Is, is an unborn baby a human life or not? And how can it not be? What, what lot, by what logic can it not be? Well, Sonia Sotomayor, probably the stupidest of the justices, she made the argument that a, a, a baby, even though it, it might feel pain or it might look like it's feeling pain, it's really like a brain-dead patient who might react. Here's, here's her argument. It's cut eight. Virtually every state defines a brain death as death. Yet the literature is filled with episodes of people who are completely and utterly dead, responding to stimuli. Um, it, there's about 40% of dead people who, if you touch their feet, the foot will recoil. There are spontaneous acts by dead brain people. So I don't think that a response to uh, by a fetus necessarily proves that there's a sensation of pain or that there's consciousness. Here's my problem with that argument. If, if you had a person who was brain dead, brain dead, and the doctor came into you and said, he, he's brain dead now, but nine months from now, he's going to be alive and fully conscious and healthy. Would you be allowed to kill him? No, 
you know, we live in time. We live, we all of us live in time. So why, even if she's right, I mean, the argument is absurd on the face of it. I get it. But like, even if she's right, how would you have a right to kill somebody who in nine months time is going to be conscious and fully alive? You know, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So they've got nothing in terms of uh, erasing this child from the face of the planet, from their own consciousness. So then they come in with the political arguments. And this is what it's all about. It's about intimidating John Roberts, who's overly worried about the reputation of the court, which, by the way, the reputation of the court would be better if they had the courage to make decisions in accordance with the Constitution than in accordance with the New York Times. But here's what Sonia Sotomayor, she basically threatens John Roberts that they will not be able to survive if they overturn this bad precedent. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, The Senate sponsor said, we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? I I, I don't see how it is possible. It's what... Casey talked about when it talked about watershed decisions. (laughs) So she's threatening him, you know, she's threatening John Roberts, essentially, that the court will lose its reputation if they overturn this, if they take the an action that the political elite will not like. There's only one reason. There is only one reason you can kill a baby in this country. And by the way, our abortion laws are in keeping with China's and North Korea's. In Europe, they are much more stringent about when they let you uh, end a pregnancy or kill a baby, as we say. There's only one reason you can kill a baby in any country, in any country, and that's because the baby has no voice. It's the same reason you can silence a little guy on Twitter. It's the same reason you can fire a Marine, but you're not going to fire the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's the same reason that you can call people racist until they're so afraid of losing their jobs. They don't want to say a damn thing, even though what they want to say is true. It's the same reason. It's because the baby hasn't got the power. And the people with the power who made this garbage decision, who have been responsible for the deaths of 3,000 babies a day in this country, will pay no price ever. This is a conspiracy of incompetence to keep from paying a price for the incompetence that has brought this country into a very, very dark period, a very dark period that I will only end when we start to hold them to account. So I want to talk about a book I read that is, I I think, an actual classic, maybe a minor classic, but still a classic. And the thing is, I don't get to read too many classics anymore that I haven't read before. I mean, as, as Knowles would say, I've read all the books. And so it's rare that I come upon a book and just think, wow, I, I have never read that. But there was a reason I never read it. This is the third book in the C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy, which has the terrible title, That Hideous Strength. One thing I like about the book is it made me feel better about the title of my book, Werewolf Cop. You know, <laughs> I thought like, well, he can call a book That Hideous Strength. Werewolf Cop is actually not as bad. But I don't like C.S. You obviously know, if you listen to the show, that I really love C.S. Lewis, and I think he's one of the great minds of the 20th century, um, pro- possibly uh, one of the central philosophers um, who was kind of swept aside by the lies, by the Freuds and the Marxes uh, and the people uh, who put forward materialism and pushed materialism on 
the elites who wanted materialism to be in place. And C.S. Lewis stood against that. So he was kind of sidelined even as the people loved him and he's, even as they kept reading him. But, but I've never liked his fiction. And I know people love, I know people who just love the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the Narnia stories and all this stuff. But to me, they suffer from the fact that they have God in them. So in the Narnia books, the lion is Jesus. So the lion solves everything. So the, the books start off with these really cool fairy tale premises, and then the lion comes on and everything's solved. And just every word that comes out of the lion's mouth is absolute truth. Uh, it's never really, it's not like Gandalf where it's kind of mysterious and wizardly and you're not sure what he's saying. It's just basic theology. And so I've never really liked his fiction. I love his nonfiction and I love the the, the the fiction that is kind of a parable, like the screw tape letters uh, or the great divorce, that kind of stuff is really not a story of fiction. It's kind of just a dream, uh, a way of a parable, a way of promoting his theology. But a guy who works at the Daily Wire, a guy named Colton Haas, I have no idea what he does. I don't think anybody really knows what he does for a living. I don't think Colton really knows what he does for a living. We've tried to keep him out. He just keeps wandering back in. But he said, you know, you really got to read this. And I thought, all right, all right. And so I picked up the first two books, Out of the Silent Planet and Perilandra. And, you know, they're, they're the same kind of thing. They're really theology as fiction. So they, as, as a fiction writer, I read them and I thought, well, it's good theology. C.S. Lewis always is the best theology, but it's not really good fiction. And the, the trope is basically that the uh, salvation uh, narrative is playing itself out on the planet. So the guy visits different planets and different parts of the salvation narrative are playing out and it's playing out in different ways. And the guy's name is Ransom. So, you know, he's related to Jesus, who's the ransom for the world and all this. But the last one, which was published uh, in 1945, the end of World War II, that hideous strength takes place on Earth, and it is very, very different. And it's part of, it was a response to the science fiction of guys like H.G. Wells who were selling what Lewis would have called scientism, the idea that science is the, the way to truth, uh, or as we now call it, Fauci, uh, that Fauci is the way to truth and there's no other aspect of human life. And he wanted to counter that. And he's talked about it with J.R.R. Tolkien. And they were both going to write stories like this. And C.S. Lewis did what he said he was going to do. But J.R.R. Tolkien instead, during the war, produced The Lord of the Rings. And the war is a turning point. Uh, the Second World War is the end of Europe. Really, it's the from the, the First World War and the Second World War, really one war with a little hiatus in between. And then the end of Europe. Europe is the greatest civilization that ever existed on the face of the planet. It was a the successor to Rome, the successor to the classic uh, um, civilizations, but it was now imbued with Christianity and that elevated it to a new height. There has been no civilization anywhere else that produced a Shakespeare, a Mozart, a Michelangelo, a Constitution of the United States, which is part of the European tradition. All of the great artists uh, that came out of this incredible culture, while they were all killing each other, by the way, was, the people in there were no better than the people in any other culture. Uh, but it was really from the Reformation from Martin Luther to World War I. This was the greatest culture that ever existed on the face of the planet. And then for reasons that really cannot be explained, it died. It killed itself. It tore itself to pieces. And in this moment of tearing itself to pieces, thoughtful people, good people, people with insight suddenly realized that the path that it had been going into down was wrong. Uh, at the end of the Victorian era, which was a very religious era, a very moralistic era, 
there came this kind of uh, rebellion from what they called the Bloomsbury Group, a group of very uh, mostly gay, highly sexualized writers, uh, guys like Lytton Strachey, who made fun of the Victorians in a book called Eminent Victorians. And they basically were rebelling against the Victorian button-down, uh, highly moralistic society. And not that there was nothing wrong with the Victorian society, but it was a very liberalizing as well as a very moralistic society. And And then everything exploded. Then there were these two wars and Europe, as we knew it, was gone. The British Empire, especially, gone. They gave it away. They gave it away because they could no longer support it. And suddenly these books start to be written. Uh, Ross Douthat of the New York Times uh, writes about this in his book, Bad Religion, where suddenly people started to come back to faith because they had seen something terrible. W.H. Auden, he starts the book uh, with uh, the story of W.H. Auden, one of the great I would I would say in the bottom level of great British poets, but still a great British poet. There's nothing uh, to shake your fist at. And he was a gay guy, openly gay. And he uh, came back to Catholicism. He said the novel and shock of the Nazis and the blitheness, which with Hitler's acolytes dismissed Christianity on the grounds that to love one's neighbor as oneself was a command fit only for effeminate weaklings, pushed him back into Christianity. He said, if, this is what Auden said, he said, if, as I am convinced, the Nazis are wrong and we are right, what is it that validates our values and invalidates theirs? And the answer to it was Christianity. And you get these great, these wonderful kind of minor end of an era novels coming up out of this dying Britain, uh, this dying British empire, like Brideshead Revisited by the Catholic novel by by Evelyn Waugh, Tiger in the Smoke. I'm sure you've never read Tiger in the Smoke. You should read it. It's a wonderful thriller by Marjorie Allingham. It's dated, but it's still terrific. Uh, That came out, End of the Affair by Graham Greene, and of course, Lord of the Rings. And this was C.S. Lewis's, this trilogy was C.S. Lewis's contribution to these classic books in which you could say that with the British Empire falling away and with Europe dying, all that was left was the spirit, this kind of little orb of light that had powered these nations into the greatest culture that had ever existed on earth. So the culture fell away and only this orb of light was left. When the culture was at its peak, when it hit peak moments, that orb of light simply suffused it. So Shakespeare, Shakespeare, who was one of the greatest Christian writers ever, he almost never mentions Christianity because Christianity infuses his plays. His plays are simply expressions of the Christian worldview without ever having to say, oh, this is the Christian worldview. It was just there. He couldn't say it because you could get yourself killed by putting forward any theology, but still it meant he could create a world that we recognize uh, as a Christian world, a world in which the moral law can only be bent so far before it snaps back and condemns you. Uh, that That is the way Shakespeare's plays works, but, but he's not a Christian writer. Suddenly, in order to write about what it was that powered Europe, you had to become a Christian writer because the culture had fallen away and all that was left was this orb of light. The spirit travels where it will. We build our our empires. We build our nations. We build our great uh, countries and businesses and enterprises, and they all collapse. But that orb of light keeps traveling on because it's true forever. That hideous strength this novel by C.S. Lewis. And, and by the way, I should say, a lot of people have told me they find this book hard to read. I didn't, but they found it dense and, and hard to read and didn't move fast like a, a thriller. 
It is so prophetic. It is such a description of our time. This is 1945, so that's, I can't do the math. This is like over 75 years ago. It is a perfect description of what's happening now. It is about a demonic takeover of England. Listen to this. It starts at a university. The progressive element comes into the university and lures people in by making them want to be included in the hip set. It is incredibly realistic. Uh, The people who reject the progressive uh, element are sort of... pushed aside, and they're not prepared for the ruthlessness of the progressives. So it's just like today. The organization behind this demonic takeover is called the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments. It's called NICE. And if you think of Black Lives Matter or anti-fascists, Black Lives Matter destroying black lives, anti-fascists who act exactly like fascists, wearing masks, dressing in black, beating people up when they don't agree with them, when they won't say what they want to say. And everybody's saying, yes, but they're nice. They're they're anti-fascists. Yes, but they're Black Lives matter is don't black lives matter that's so it's called nice it's exactly like today nice how does nice comes into a university town it defunds the police and replaces them with private security and then sets off riots so that the private security can arrest and capture people who do not agree with essentially the devil the devil is coming to town one of the heroes of the book is a lady named jane studdick a very attractive young housewife who is um bedeviled by her feminism. She's, her marriage isn't working and she keeps feeling she should get back to her um, academic work. She wanted to be a professor, but she, she's alienated from that, but she's also alienated from her feminine self as a wife. She uh, feels that the idea that she might owe obedience to her husband, submission to her husband, that just repels her. The idea that she might be asked to take a sacrificial attitude uh, toward being a woman uh, offends her. Uh, she doesn't want anything to, she keeps saying, I don't want things to intrude on her life, which of course is the nature of being a woman. Babies intrude on your life. Husbands intrude on your life. They intrude on, they all want to be uh, taken care of. You know, guys who belittle women, who like to talk down to women or talk about women uh, as if they don't matter, they're always saying, hey, go on, make me a sandwich. Never be fooled by that. Make me a sandwich is a way, the way that men said they express their hunger for love. They are desperate for a woman's love. They're desperate for women to take care of them. They depend on women taking care of them. That's what make me a sandwich means, okay? But they don't want to express the vulnerability about it, so they put it, they think it makes them tough guys, so they put it in that way. On the other side, on the demonic side, and this really got me because C.S. Lewis is a very clean writer. And one of the things I don't like about his fiction is it tends to be twee, which is a British word meaning super cute. You know, it tends to be like little cottages and all that. Uh, the first lines of the book, The Hobbit, are twee, and I've always disliked them, but he uses that tweeness to uh, actually play against it. So uh, it, it makes sense. It makes artistic sense. But in C.S. Lewis, Now, on the demonic side, the main woman is a lesbian sadist who likes to torture young girls. So this is a fierce book. I mean, there are scenes in this that are seriously horrific. I should warn you about that, too. They are seriously horrific. It is not what you expect uh, from C.S. Lewis. But but that's the, the the. Female on the other side has just completely gotten rid of femininity, uh, and she's clearly a lesbian. She's clearly a sadist, and so Jane is is trying to find, bring her relationship with her husband back to life, her husband Mark back to life. And at one point, as she starts to suspect that maybe there's a God because she's kind of left all this behind, she starts to have a new vision of what it means to be objectified as a woman. woman. You know, the feminists are always attacking objectification. She says, 
She thinks religion ought to mean a realm in which her haunting female fear of being treated as a thing, an object of barter and desire and possession, would be set permanently at rest, and what she called her true self would soar upwards and expand in some freer, purer world. But, but, what if one were a thing after all? a thing designed and invented by someone else and valued for qualities quite different from what one had decided to regard as one true self. Supposing all those people who infuriatingly had found her sweet and fresh when she wanted them to find her interesting and important, what if they had all along been simply right and perceived the sort of thing she was. The purpose of the godly is to see themselves through God's eyes. And you've heard me talk about how Jesus is teaching us. That is what he's teaching us, is how to see ourselves through God's eyes. This book is so much like today. It is so, if you don't recognize the news in this book, you're not reading it right. It is this book. And, and one of the things the science fiction fantasy writer Ursica, Ursula K. Le Guin uh, said was that science fiction writers don't write about the future. What they do is they write about the present and they extrapolate essentially the present into the future. And that's why this book is so amazingly right in its uh, um, depiction of how the devil takes over. I mean, I was watching during this uh, Supreme Court thing uh, where they're arguing about, uh, about abortion outside. The pro-abortion women are shouting Abor we're abortion pills forever and they're popping abortion pills and they're, they, they're these degraded, these poor, sad, degraded women uh, who think that abortion makes them free. They think that they can take the womb and uh, remove its purpose and that will free them from the slavery of the womb. But of course, it just turns them into monsters uh, and, to, and to fools who are enslaved essentially by their, their flesh. The villain uh, of that hideous strength, this wonderful, wonderful C.S. Lewis uh, novel, uh, is objectivity. That is the opposite of what the godly people are fighting for. The bad guys are fighting to teach objectivity. And Jane's husband, Mark, is being lured in by the devil and they try to teach him to become objective. And they put him in a room and in the room, everything's just a little bit off. Uh, and they say to him, motives are not the causes of action, but it's byproducts. In other words, what your heart is telling you is just a, a, an effusion of physical um, a, a physical facts. You know, if you read Yuval Harari, the guy who wrote Homo Deus, one of Bill Gates's favorite writers, uh, he says, we never react to events in the outside world, but only to sensations in our own body. No, Nobody suffers because she lost her job or because she got divorced or because the government went to war. That's not why you suffer. The only thing that makes people miserable is unpleasant sensations in their own bodies, which are caused by chemicals. And that's objectivity is taking away the human experience, right? The human experience is just an illusion created by flesh. And you know, in the Bible, uh, St. Paul is always saying, play to the spirit, not to the flesh. What the objectivity people are saying is play to the flesh, not to the spirit. They, th You think it's going to set you free. You think it's going to set you free to say, oh no, George Floyd's not a criminal. He's a, he will build a statue to him. He's a martyr. Uh, oh no, you know, sex is not for uh, conception. It's just for fun. We'll do it any way we want. You think it's going to set you free, but in fact, it enslaves you every single time. And you know, there's this moment when this guy, Mark, is sitting in a room and he's looking at the paintings that, where they're trying to teach him objectivity. And he says, some of them belong to a school of art with which he was already familiar. There was a portrait of a young woman who held her mouth wide open to reveal the fact that the inside of it was thickly overgrown with hair. Uh, there are uh, religious paintings where everything is just a little bit off, but they, they instead of luring him into the evil of objectivity, they turn him away from it. And he starts to realize that 
the human being, the human flesh is actually a um, language of spirit. It's like a machine for feeling its way through morality, uh, to morality, to the moral world and to the spot, the to the spiritual world. Science, or Fauci, as we now call it, is in fact idolatry the way the left talks about it. We've noticed this, right? They talk about the science. It's the science talking. Fauci is the science. But there is no the science. Science is a wonderful, wonderful blessing. It is a method by which human beings can learn about the material world. But, but in the end, in the end, if you think that you are going to control the world through the science, the science is going to control you. And this is something that C.S. Lewis learned from his friend Owen Barfield, who philosophized that we once understood the world as imbued with spirit, and then we separated the spirit from the flesh, and the spirit essentially fell off and became irrelevant and died, while the flesh became everything and became our idol. Objectivity is idolatry, and this is what C.S. Lewis depicts in this incredible novel, That Hideous Strength. I can't recommend it enough. As I said, some people find it hard to read, uh, dense read, but I just found it incredibly, an incredibly exciting spiritual explanation of the things that are going on today. It is almost like reading the newspaper, but like reading the newspaper with a spiritual eye that shows you what's going on underneath it. I really highly recommend this book.